Today's reading will be from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is God's word. Uh, you might want to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 to keep that in front of you if you, you have a few Bibles are in front of you as well this morning. So, A number of years ago, I sat down with a young Muslim man who was interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ. So I explained to him, the Christian is, is like an egg. All we see is the outer shell. We don't see the inner life underneath. But as the egg has a layer of white beneath the shell, and then in the very center, a yoke. So the Christian life is layered as well. And so I drew a circle representing the outer life. And outside of that circle, like outside of the shell, I wrote Christian actions such as worship, service, prayer, scripture reading, obedience to God, generosity, evangelism. These are all things we might see about the Christian, but that isn't what the Christian life is about. Because Jesus isn't just interested in the outside. He wants to know the heart from which these actions flow. When he spoke of religious leaders of his day who were in many ways perfect in the eyes of others on the outside, he said, they're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. Jesus wants these actions to flow from love for him, from being united with him because we love him so much. We love God. But from where does that love come? And so we go into the inner circle beyond that to the very yoke of the Christian life. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. The love that God has for us is so great and it is shown to us at the cross of Jesus 
Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the greater we understand our sinfulness, the greater we understand the love of God and the price that he paid to bring us back to himself. That young man looked at that circle and he said, you know, my religion is all about the outside. I want that. I want what you have. More people would embrace Christianity if they understood it isn't about the outer shell. It isn't about a life of legalistic and moralistic duty. It's about that inner life of a love relationship with God which brings joy and brings faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, do meet us this morning. There is no way we can capture with words what Isaiah experienced. But your Holy Spirit can make it real to us in a way that my words can't. So may, your, may we open ourselves up to see what Isaiah saw. Open ourselves up to the Spirit bringing us into the presence of God and to see how that impacts our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 mirrors what I was talking about in the Christian life in the concentric circles, only it adds an other circle right in the very heart of our lives, which, out of which everything else flows, and that is a vision of God, seeing God for who he is. So, on the outer circle, we're going to see Isaiah serves God. And he serves God out of love because he realizes how much he is forgiven by God. He who is forgiven much loves much. And so knowing that he loves God, but he loves God because of that realization of how much he is forgiven, how much God loves him and has paid for him. And that's because he realized how great his sin was. He who has forgiven much loves much. If we think we're forgiven this much, we will love this much. If we realize we are forgiven this much, we will love this much. Isaiah realized he was forgiven this much. Why did he realize he was forgiven this much? Because he saw the holiness of God. That has to be at the center of our lives. The vision that Isaiah had has to be ours. This morning, as we look at this passage, I'm going to begin with the last verse and just look at the outer layer of Isaiah's life. Then we're going to go to the heart of his vision and see how the Christian life flows from that. we see that Isaiah accepted a call from God. God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah immediately, having been forgiven, feeling that acceptance, that love for God, raised his hand and said, send me. 
then God explained the, the call a little fuller. And he said, well, when you go and you proclaim my word, uh, people are going to reject you. In fact, the word you say is actually going to harden their hearts against you. Now, if you heard that about your evangelism, it probably would uh, temper how much we wanted to speak about the gospel. We know when we share the gospel that probably a small number of people will really accept it. However, we always have that hope, at least a small number of people. So I'll, I'll endure rejection if the message will bring life to some. Isaiah didn't have that message. Your message will blind them and harden their hearts. Still want that call? Isaiah didn't say, ah, oh, on second thought, God. <laughs> Instead, he says, how long? God essentially says, your whole life. But Isaiah still goes. In fact, he lived under a shadow of rejection most of his life. And that rejection essentially led his martyrdom. There's a pseudepigraphal book, it's an intertestamental book, called The Martyrdom of Isaiah. And it details what Isaiah went through in his, the persecution his life ended when he was sawn in half. Now, many of the pseudepigraphal books uh, are fantastical. But we know this is true because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, when the author details persecutions that believers went through, he talks about those who were sawn in two. The outer life of Isaiah was one that served God no matter what the cost. Each layer of Isaiah's spiritual journey is in this passage. And so now we go to what began this journey. And it is his vision of God. We read, In the year of King Uzziah's died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Isaiah saw God in all his splendor. He was seated on a throne high and lifted up. He's seated on a throne because he is the king. He is the king of kings. King Uzziah had been a faithful king for most of his life, but he became arrogant. And this led him to denigrate the holiness of God and bring judgment we read his story in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But when he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he is unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
He stepped on the holiness of God by entering into the holy of holy place where the priests were served. He felt so, he was so arrogant that he burned incense on the altar. The priests gathered around him and they told him what he had done wrong. They pointed out his sin and how horrendous it was. And he became furious at them. And so God struck him with leprosy. See, it was a time. Uzziah had now died. He hadn't been king for a while, but his death still struck the people because he had been a faithful team king. It was now a time that the nation needed to be reminded of who truly sits on the throne. God does. And it's a reminder that we need today. In the turmoil that's all around us, we need to know God sits on the throne. He is sovereign. But we also need to know that he sits on the heavenly throne. And if he does, he should sit on the throne of our lives. We struggle against this. We prefer to sit on our own thrones. We often live by the words that close out the poem Invictus. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my ship. Isaiah's vision cries out, no, the Lord is master of our fate. He is captain of our souls and we should give him his rightful place. He's seated on a throne and he is high and lifted up. Yet many of us treat him as common, as ordinary. Over 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis cited the change in people's attitudes toward God when he wrote, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is judge and God is in the dock. God is the one, the defendant now. And that's the way our culture has moved. Instead of us fearing the God who is judge, we judge God. Wonder why he doesn't do what we want him to do. That he isn't the type of God we want to do. And so we reinvent him to fit our desires. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do you really believe that? So how are we to judge God? Who are we to think that our thoughts are better than his? That our ways are better than God's? How arrogant can we be? God is high and lifted up and his robe filled the temple. One commentary on, note, on Isaiah notes that the robe of the king was often lengthened every time he conquered another kingdom. 
The length of the robe represented his presence and the length and extent of his rule and reign. I believe the veil of Princess Diana was 24 feet long, something like that, showing the royalty. Well, God's robe, God's robe filled the temple and spoke of his rule in his reign, his kingdom over the universe. And in this vision, Isaiah sees the throne of God surrounded by angels. Seraphim. This is the only mention of seraphim in the Bible, so we don't know much about them other than that their name means burning ones. Their response to God is a model for us. They have six wings. With two, they cover their eyes because the brilliance of God's glory is so great. The intensity of his character so powerful that they can't bear to look at him. They cover their feet, which shows that they feel unworthy to be in God's presence. And with two wings, they fly, showing that they are ready to do any service for God that he asks. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know, in English, when we want to, when we want to uh, express a superlative, we add the letters E-S-T. So we might say, Tom Brady is great, but he's more than great. He's the greatest. And that's the top. You don't get any better than the greatest. This is the only place in Scripture where a word is used three times to describe someone. See, Hebrew doesn't have EST. To express in a, a superlative, they say the word over again. So if they wanted to say God's the holiest, they'd say he's holy, holy. This is the only place it's used three times. He is holy, the holiest. He is beyond our comprehension of being holy. That's what the angels see. That's what the, angel, the, the seraphim declare. Now the word holy means separate, above, beyond. And so God is separate in all his qualities. To try to capture this, I'll use a, maybe a bit of an inane uh, illustration. If God was bowling a string, he would score one million points. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. Perfect is 300. Yes, in human terms. But God is holy, holy, holy. It is beyond that. His separatist is like bowling a thousand. It's incomprehensible to us. Incomprehensible to even the seraphim who surround his throne. And he is separate. He is holy in his moral character. And that's usually what we think of when we hear the word holy. He's morally perfect. But he's morally perfect, perfect, perfect. But he's perfect in all his attributes. He's holy in all his attributes. He's holy in his knowledge. Holy in his ways. Holy in his justice, holy in his love, 
holy in his grace and his mercy. Every quality, he is holy, 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 beyond comprehension. And the seraphim cover themselves because they feel unworthy to be in his presence. See, the seraphim would bowl 300 every game. They were sinless. They were as perfect as perfect could be. But they felt unworthy in the presence of God's holiness. Because they were so captured by his holiness, they were captured by his glory. And so they cry out, the whole earth is full of his glory. They see God's glory everywhere. They see it in the creation of the world. They see it in the stars. They see it in his handiwork. They see it in his blessings. They see it in his faithfulness. They see it in his holiness. They see it in his justice. They see it in his care. They see it in his goodness. They see the holiness of the glory of God everywhere. Why do we miss it? Because we aren't looking through their eyes. And then, verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I read this, and I can't help to think of uh, the Wizard of Oz. Do you, do you remember the scene where Dorothy, uh, the scarecrow, the tin man, and the cowardly lion go into the presence of Oz for the, the great and terrible Oz for the first time? And Oz speaks, and the cowardly lion begins to shake, and he's just shaking and shaking and shaking, and then Oz shouts out, and the cowardly lion turns tail literally, runs out the building, races down the hall, and dives out a window. I think that's the way we would all respond if we were in the presence of God. But here it doesn't say Isaiah shook. The thresholds of the temple shook. Shook, showing that Isaiah could not enter the temple of God. If you were in an earthquake and the, the doorways were shaken, you would not walk through them. So Isaiah realized he could not walk through. And it was filled with smoke because he could not see. He was not worthy of seeing the glory of God. The majesty, lordship, and holiness of God is what sets the entire Christian life in process. If we wonder why people aren't ready to embrace the Christian life today, the answer is found in the fact that they do not embrace the holiness of God. Because that's where it all begins. People might call to one another, God is love, 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 but we don't hear them saying God is holy, holy, holy. The irony is that we won't begin to fathom the heights and depths of God's love until we understand his utter holiness. Isaiah understood God's holiness. He felt the temple shake, and he was shaken. 
And he cries out, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew that he was in trouble, that a holy and just God's only response to his sinfulness was to judge him. The words of the seraphim hit home. We might wonder, why does he point to his lips? as the essence of his sin rather than his heart or his motivation or his actions. It's because he just heard what came from the lips of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he realized he was not holy like God. He was not living with God on the throne of his life as he should his life wasn't all about the glory of God, not just seeing it, but living it out. And see, he sees all of his sinfulness. And he adds, he lives among a people of unclean lips. Note that he doesn't compare himself to the people. He doesn't say, I live among a people of unclean lips, but my lips aren't quite as unclean as theirs. No, he's comparing himself to the seraphim. I am not like them. I am not like one who lives in the presence of God. And my people aren't like that either. A lot of us think that we are worthy because we compare ourselves to others who don't seem as morally pure as we are, as religiously committed as we are. But what if we compared ourselves to, say, Jesus? Jesus said, be perfect for the Lord your God is perfect. When we begin to compare ourselves to God, as he lived in the life of Jesus Christ, we would realize, like Isaiah, woe is me, I am sinful. See, it's difficult for us to accept that about ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote this, the greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. What he's saying is, the people I can't get through to, I can't get through because people don't see their sinfulness. They're not willing to admit it. We struggle so much. But Isaiah not only saw his sinfulness, he realized that even though God might be a God of love, he is a God of justice who condemns sin. Woe is me. We don't face the gravity of our sin and the reality of God's judgment because we don't ponder, we don't meditate on the holiness of God. That's where it all begins. Isaiah now was like a man, a drowning man who couldn't swim caught up in a turbulent undertow. He knew he was doomed unless a lifesaver was cast to him or a lifeguard jumped in to save him. And so we read in Isaiah 6 and 7, 
a lifeguard came. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with tongs from the altar. He touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. A seraph goes to the altar. He takes a coal from the altar, which means that was an altar that had burning coals. Burning coals were there to consume the sacrificial animal, often Passover lamb. And he took that, representing the sacrifice for sin, and he touched the lips of Isaiah, the very essence of what Isaiah saw as his sin. And then he hears the words, your guilt is taken away, your sins are atoned for, they're paid for. You are free. Guilt is vanished. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. His sin is atoned for, not by himself. He didn't pay for it. The sacrifice did. Isaiah was set free from God's judgment, from guilt, from remorse, from the depression we have when we realize our sinfulness. And he was filled with gratitude. He who has forgiven much loves much. And so he was ready to hear the call of God. We know today that the sacrifice of lambs and bulls can't pay for sin. It has to be a human. And if he's going to pay for the sins of more than one, that human has to be divine. John the Baptist once looked at Jesus, told his disciples, and as he pointed at Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That altar represented what Jesus Christ did for all of us in paying for our sin. He didn't pay with gold or silver or precious stones. He paid with his very life, physically and spiritually. He took the judgment of God we deserved. Pontius Pilate once gave the Jewish people a choice between two men. One would be set free, the other be sent to the cross. One of those men was named Barabbas. Barabbas was a thief, perhaps a murderer. His crimes were worthy of the death penalty, and so he had been given the death penalty. The other man was named Jesus. He was pure. He was good. He was faithful. He loved God. He loved people. And he served God and he served people. And the people cried out, give us Barabbas. What do you do with Jesus? Crucify him. Jesus took the death that Barabbas deserved. God is faced with a choice. Us or his son. We are worthy of death. We are worthy of the judgment of God. Jesus is innocent, pure, good, and holy. 
Jesus chose. God chose us and sent Jesus to the cross. When we begin to comprehend that, love will grow up in our hearts for him. And that love will lead to a life of transformation. That's the Christian life. R.C. Sproul once said, the greatest crisis in the Christian church today is that they don't actually know God. They don't know who he is or what he's like. You know, he didn't say the greatest crisis in the world today is that people don't know God. And that is true. But he's pointing his finger at us. The greatest problem in the church today is that we don't know God. If we stood in the presence of God, we wouldn't compromise our values. The trinkets of the world wouldn't entice us. We wouldn't give in to our fleshly passions, but most of all, we would continually rehearse the gospel. We would see ourselves in light of God's holiness, cry out, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am sinful. And so we would turn, not to an altar, but to the cross and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ when he cries out, it is finished, the payment has been made. We would appreciate him and fall in love with him all over again. And because we love him, we would live for him. And we'd live the Christian life from the inside out. Our Father, thank you for this vision that you gave Isaiah. His response. Lord, lead us through those same steps day after day after day. May we live in love at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.